to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic. Also, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. Now, without further ado, our guest for today is Wendy Teasdale, and she has a book called Integrating Philosophy in Yoga Teaching and Practice. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for asking me. So how did you get into the yoga lifestyle? Uh, well, it's kind of um, the lifestyle followed. The yoga started. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that because, you know, when I started, which was like 1979, it's a little while back, um, What what's going on in the world now with yoga was totally unimaginable. Anyway, how did it start? I went overland to India, 78, 79, um, through Afghanistan and Pakistan, where I drank some dirty water by accident. It didn't look dirty, it looked clean, but it must have had a hepatitis um, A uh, microbe, or don't, it's not, anyway, it's not a microbe, is it? Anyway, virus in it. Whatever. Um, that's where I picked up hepatitis and became very... Um, ooh, just unenergetic, really, and didn't really, uh, couldn't really recognize myself, um, couldn't really do much. Um, took up yoga when I came back to the UK, started with pranayama, and it gave me my vitality back, and um, that's it really. I've been um, doing yoga every day ever since. Wow. Um, so, so how many, at, at that time in the 70s, like how popular was yoga in the UK? Well, it, it wasn't exactly uh, mainstream. <laughs> it was, so I went to, um, I mean, it was there, it was there, you know, but it's but, um, it definitely on the edge of normal. It, it wasn't um, something that everybody did by any means, but um, it was a, an evening class at, at, at a local school that I went to. And it was full and... You know, I knew quite a few of the people there, like um, friends of my parents perhaps were there. So it, it, it wasn't completely out on the outer limits, but um, nothing like it is now. Interesting. You know, when I first, when I took, did yoga, it was in the 90s. And even in the early 90s, it wasn't like, it wasn't like it is now. Like I went to like this Hatha yoga teacher. And he was this old guy with a long beard and a turban. And now it's completely different. Now there's like a, a little yoga place in almost every shopping center. It's become like super mainstream. It's absolutely everywhere. Every shopping center. Wow. <laughs> Pretty <Yeah>. much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
and it's everywhere wherever you go all over the world you can um google the yoga centers where you're going and if you're lucky enough to be able to travel at the moment anyway and there they are and everybody and have you noticed how much yoga there is in mainstream media and advertisements no no movie or um series is complete without the yoga class scene adverts there's uh, so many ads they just pop in a downward dog or whatever they've got their nod to yoga which is which is extraordinary. So, um, I mean, I came, I came to yoga from, from necessity and actually a lot of people do. Whereas, you know, these days it's just like, well, it's a done thing to do. And you mentioned that word lifestyle. There's, there's very much a lifestyle for sale around that. Hmm. So, but of course it goes much deeper. So, so how much of yoga is, um, you know, health based, like really health based, like, you know, spiritually and physically and, and diet versus what is commercialized, where they're just trying to make a buck. I think it really depends. There's so many different approaches to yoga. You've got um, people, you've got uh, people just giving yoga classes and never charging any money because they're doing it from their own home. Um, maybe and I'm talking here, possibly Hindus. That I mean, that that does seem to happen. But of course, it is big business now. Um, lots of, I train yoga teachers myself, and it's actually not that easy to make a living as a yoga teacher. Um, but on the other hand, it is possible um, with diligence, especially if you have another job um, or if you specialise in something. Um, but then, yes, there's there's the big yoga studios. There was, I don't know if it's still there in Hong Kong because of COVID and everything. I haven't been back, but... Um, that's sort of going off another ta on another tangent, but um, at one time, in the early 80s, I was basically the only yoga teacher in Hong Kong teaching on the beach, and, the beach. and then I went back beginning of the 21st century, and there's yoga studios, huge yoga studios everywhere, and they, they are definitely, you know, some of those are really definitely just in it for making the money because they, um, they've got a huge turnover it's not got that small personal touch but having said that um you know there's a there's a lot of really good yoga studios um try yoga which was in primrose hill and um west london anyway so for example they've got a good ether they're not just for making money they do really good work as well so across the spectrum across the board um i you know there's always going to be people wanting to make money and you got all these really really e uh, really quick and easy teacher training courses springing up so anyone can learn to teach yoga in a weekend but actually people aren't going to keep coming to you if you learn to teach yoga in a weekend it's it doesn't really work so there's a right. natural shifting process interesting um so your book is the philosophy of yoga um what is that? Like, 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 I didn't know that yoga actually had a philosophy. Like, I know its origins are obviously from the Hindu, um, you know, Vedic traditions. Um, is it, is that incorporated into your book, or are you talking about something else? Well, there's many, many tributaries that feed into the yoga philosophy. So there is no one yoga philosophy, and actually, Hinduism. Hinduism and yoga share roots, you could say, and mm -hmm. um, yoga is one of the six darshans, they call it, or whatever, um, 
aspects of Hinduism. But um, the, you mentioned the Vedas. I mean, everybody goes back to the Vedas, but it's not like you're going to learn to do um, your downward dog pose from reading the, the Vedas. There's, there's some, is this authority, this wanting to go back to something that really meant something? And, you know, the Vedas, they're mysterious. Have you ever read them? I read some of them, yeah. I've read the, the main ones. So the, the Rig Veda, I mean, they're, they're long. So do you remember the, anything about the Rig Veda? No. <laughs> hymns to, okay, so you've got hymns to fire. And there is mention of the long-haired ascetics who were presumably, you know, doing things which are now regarded as yoga, but there's no actual description of what they were doing. So mm -hmm. the tawny ones or the long-haired ones or the... Um, sky clad so does that mean they were naked or um, does it mean that they were fueled by pranayama yogic breathing we don't know it's so mysterious so back to your question about the philosophy of yoga there are different philosophies you see um, and anybody doing a yoga teacher training course they will um, you know they get a bit confused about what's the difference between Samkhya and Vedanta for example those are two philosophies which are associated with yoga and each one of them has a whole smorgasbord of um, variations so Vedanta is the philosophy of all is one and Upanishads which grew out of the Vedas when people started to go to the um, forest <coughs> excuse me and um, sit down and look for their own journey of self-realization so that, that's, that's Vedanta, basically the philosophy is everything is one, suffused by Brahman, this spirit of divinity. But then you also get in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, Patanjali um, emerged around about the 3rd, 4th century CE, um, the Samkhya philosophy, which is a very different philosophy. Excuse me, I, I want to mute myself because I, I need to cough. Okay. Okay. Um, actually, it might be because I'm holding these stones, which are a bit dusty. Put them down. Samkhya is very different. So the philosophy of Samkhya divides, well, basically there's two divisions. There's Prakriti, everything to do with nature, everything that we see, taste, smell, touch, and hear. Everything that we access through the senses. That is Prakriti, the world of nature. And then there's the then there's the Ishvara, the um, this realm beyond, and it's the thing is about Samkhya is it's up. So going through the nature, you've got all the um, yes, you've got the senses, you've got the subtle senses, you've got the elements. So there's 25 or 26 um, tattvas or aspects of nature, which are all accepted. But the idea of Samkhya and what Patanjali is talking about in his Yoga Sutras is about gradually withdrawing our attention from the matters that grab our senses. So we become more and more rarefied. So eventually we each of us go off in our own individual Purusha. We realise our own individual, uh, what's called Purusha. Um, which is like, that's the divine part of ourselves, but each of us is an individual. It's not all is one at all. Um, salvation is a very individual process. So there you've got two very basic different philosophies. Vedanta is all is one. Samkhya 
you're going from the relative to the absolute. And quite honestly, a lot of yoga teachers don't know the difference. And quite honestly, it really doesn't matter because there's quite a lot of overlap when you really go into it. Uh, plus, there's so many different sorts of Vedanta uh, um, and dualism. So qualified dualism, non-qualified dualism. So if you really want to go into it and split hairs, it goes on forever. But um, you asked me to talk about yoga philosophy, and that's what my book's about. So my book attempts to simplify um, the differences between those two main philosophies and to also to bring the philosophy into the practice of yoga as we know it so you ask somebody if they do yoga and they've got all images of downward facing dog or sitting in a lotus chanting om or what have you that's that so we think of postures including lotus as doing yoga don't we that's not what mm. yoga was it's got different strands um, contributing to its evolution so you've got the asceticism of um, well those long-haired ones those sky-clad characters that we find in the rig veda followers of rudra who is the precursor of shiva um, so the ascetics who would fast and maybe stand on one leg all day or lie in the sun uh, basically perform austerities which are very uncomfortable um, but Quite a few of those practices have fed into what we now recognize as yoga. So standing on one leg with one foot on the opposite thigh with your hands above your head or hands at the heart. Brikshasana tree pose, that, that comes from um, those early ascetic practices. And those were actually, well, we don't know who they were because a lot of it wasn't written down. But um, when things started to get written down, we know that um, there were Jain ascetics and there were Buddhist ascetics from about the 7th century um, BCE. So that's one strand. Um, so that no pain, no gain um, approach might fit in there. But then you've also got the idea of ahimsa and non-violence and kindness coming in. And you say so you've got millions of different strands basically and there's only hundreds of texts being translated but they are so when you say what is yoga philosophy well i've outlined the basic two there are many different um variations of that and subdivisions um but what i'm doing in my book is embodying so getting people to um think about philosophical points whilst they're in the posture so for example um in Patanjali, you have uh, the the underpinning principle of non-grasping, aparigraha. Um, so you can take that into any posture because our hands we have a we have an instinct to reach out. Playing with those stones just now, I think they're making me cough. So dusty, so I put them down. Um, this tendency to grab. So to be happy with empty hands and to revel in the space that we already have, for example, could be one point um, to consider a paragraha. Now, I'm not going to stand in front of a yoga class and tell people, oh, no, don't be greedy, because um, people don't want to be lectured. People don't want to be told what to do. Or if they do, they can go to a guru, but not to my class. 
Um, I'm only giving suggestions when they're doing the yoga, but I think bringing the philosophy in in a practical way helps it sink in a little bit more than just talking about it and people listening but not hearing. Did that answer your question? It does. Um, one of the books that um, I don't know if it's related to how much, how closely it's related to actual yoga is the autobiography of a yogi by Anand, by Yogananda. Um, which school would he be related to? Like the aesthetic school? Oh, good question. It's a long time since I read that book. That's a really good question. I'll have to get back with you to, uh, to answer <laughs> on that one. But again, he would be drawing probably on all on all sources. But um, he was he was from Bengal, so it'd be quite a tantric element in there and tantra is of course it's you know a bit of a dodgy word these days because people immediately think of tantric sex but actually tantra the original well as usual in sanskrit every sanskrit word's got different meanings but tantra um referred to texts which came out in Oh, sometime around the 6th century CE, um, so yogic texts, and this is where the ideas of the um, chakras started to emerge, and all that feeds into yoga as we understand it now. Um, and also the word tan or means to expand, so definitely um, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, he was very expansive because I do remember going into those different um, realities, so, so I'd say quite a lot of Tantra there because a lot of Tantra came out of um, northeast, northeastern India. Um, but there would have been influence from all of them. And, and the interesting thing is that having written a book about it, um, because this is, I've spent years trying to find ways of um, clarifying this to my students. I found the best way was embodying it. At the end of the day, as I said, it really doesn't matter because every every teacher takes their influences from here, there and everywhere. But it is interesting. I'm absolutely fascinated by mm. where yoga comes from. And it's a never ending um, investigation. Is, is there any difference um, or, or maybe is, is there anything missing from yoga the way it is taught now and the way it was you know, a thousand years ago, because like a thousand years ago, to me, it seems like it was more of a mystical tradition, where now it's more of a lifestyle and, and exercise. Yeah, so there's a lot of talk about the pizza effect, like pizza adapting to the environment to which it's migrated. I think that's very much going on. How was yoga taught a thousand years ago? Um, it was taught, well, we don't, a lot of it we don't know, but what we do know that, yes, there was a lot of um, mystical practices and yoga, I mean, a thousand years ago, they didn't even use the word hatha yoga, which we take to uh, mean the body, but um, they'd be sitting, meditating, watching the breath, practicing kachari mudra, so raja yoga was... Um, sort of up and coming about a thousand years ago. So rolling the tongue back so it goes to the soft palate and merging with space. So a lot more far out, um, indefinable um, practices. And far, yes, some there is some record of yoga asanas as we understand them. 
but not much. And whereas now, um, people, you know, they, they put their bodies in different shapes and that's called yoga as well. I'm not going to say that any of them are not yoga, but I think um, that you go to a class and, you know, even if the teacher has just learned to teach yoga in a weekend, they've got, they've got enough to spark an interest. So somebody might go to that class and think, well, that was all right, sorted my neck out, but now I've got a dodgy knee because the teacher doesn't know how to deal with dodgy. You know, we don't know, but it could be a spark. And then they'll go on and find another class and another class because everybody has a different teacher to suit them. Everybody has a different style, a different school, and no one is better than any other. And I would never say that um, physical yoga done with the body is any is in any way inferior to meditation because actually at the end of the day they're all merging they merge into one and the physical becomes a bridge through the metaphysical to whatever it is so um i think now there's so many more of us many of us like we are now at our computers there's a sedentary lifestyle if you're not careful and so I think the need for physical yoga is very great. But I think what happens when you start the physical yoga, and especially when you start to watch the breath, and realise that the breath is like a vehicle for something, something more esoteric, something more intangible. And that's what keeps bringing people back to the class. And what it is, actually, is it, you, you could say it's a very physical thing, um, when we do physical yoga, especially when we follow that up with a bit of breathing and relaxation, we're getting in touch with our parasympathetic nervous system. And the parasympathetic nervous system, do you know what I'm talking about there? No idea. Okay, so, <laughs> um, sympathetic nervous system, it's just how the body works. So, um, if, if, you, um, if you're hammering a nail and you accidentally um, hit your finger with the hammer that's going to hurt and you're going to react quite rightly too um, and it is the same so that's a, a physical example um, if you are in traffic um, calmly minding your own business and somebody in an adjacent car has got road rage and decides that it's all your fault that the traffic stopped even though it's not and gets out and tries to have a fight with you um, your sympathetic nervous system is going to be aroused in just the same way as if you were if you'd hit your finger with a hammer but it so you get the adrenaline coming in and so that's your fight flight um or freeze reflex what have you um but it's a reaction is what i mean it's a physical reaction parasympathetic nervous system uh well if that person comes at you and tries to um, start picking the fight and you just go no, I'm not going to engage in this. You'd be, uh, you know, it'd be a good thing to do if you could, and just sit there chanting on to yourself, um, and you don't allow the address. And you'd have to be quite advanced in practice maybe for that to happen. Um, but anyway, that's the parasympathetic nervous system coming into play. So what we're, um, what what we're um, encouraging in the practice of yoga is for us to come into the state of the parasympathetic nervous system is like para, you know, paragliding, para, Paralympics. Para. But 
paramedics, you know, it's something which is above. We we sort of rise above the situation, don't react, see everything as one, and that's what happens when we do yoga. Hmm. Bit long winded, sorry. That's interesting. Um um, do all yoga teachers address that though? The the the, the parasite of it? Do they know it? Did did he did he teach it? Did he know it? Um, yeah, well, that's what you're teaching when you teach yoga. But some of them will know it, some of them won't. It depends on their training. But that's what really makes a difference. So I used to um, specialize in pregnancy yoga. Uh, not so much now, but still, pregnancy yoga is a subject very dear to my heart. And so I'd be preparing women to give birth. And that, that's where the awareness of the fact that we actually can take ourselves deliberately to the parasympathetic nervous systems through yogic techniques. That's where it really uh, comes in useful because, I, I, I mean, you won't have given birth. I don't think you've ever witnessed um, somebody giving birth. But anyway, birthing pain, you know, everybody experiences different, different birthing experiences. So... Ah, so if um, so if the um, the pain comes along, you get, ah, and hold your breath and tense all the muscles, the pain will be greater. And I say, actually, it's not pain. It's, it's just a little tension. So what we need to do is to breathe that tension away. And you, these are techniques that we learn in the pregnancy yoga class. Um, breathe, um, breathe in, breathe out, and just keep breathing because this is what keeps us in touch with the parasympathetic nervous system. And then in labor, it's keeping the breath going, deepening the breath, lengthening the exhalation, and that's what changes the whole perception of tension as pain into one of, oh, no, I've got this. I've got the ability to let this go. And it's extraordinary, because then I'm teaching women tools to get themselves through the birthing experience, and they do, but... It's not just me teaching it, lots of, lots of, um, I think pregnancy yoga teachers know this possibly more than other teachers though, because then, because you're using the yoga techniques, whatever they may be, the, the positions, mostly the breathing, and maybe mental visualization, but whatever techniques, you're giving them techniques that they can use to get them through quite a, um, it's a strong experience giving birth. Hmm. So... It's, uh, but back to your regular yoga class, what's actually happening with the people in the class as they breathe and they go through the, uh, the movements, they are in training with their own parasympathetic nervous system and letting go of stress, letting go of reactions. A lot of stress is due to overreacting to things that happen to us. If we can put stuff back in proportion, I know you know. I have never, ever, ever got off my yoga mat feeling worse than when I got on. Always, <laughs> so much better. Interesting. Like I can do that through meditation, but I, um, when it, when it comes to actually trying to do yoga, especially now that I'm older, I can't bend myself into any of those positions. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter. You just take it. You know, you, you, it's not say you can't do yoga, it just means you don't need to think that you need to be standing on one leg and putting the sole of the other foot on top of your head. Mm -hmm. That's that's not necessarily yoga. That could be that could also be called just showing off. Uh, so you don't have to. Although, you know, if you can do it, why not show it off? But mm -hmm. there's no need for, for that to be the 
image of yogi there's lots of i mean that's another wonderful thing today we have so many different brands and styles of and approaches to yoga you could do yoga no problem are you doing it with your meditation hmm. so have you heard of yin yoga for example no so yin so yin and yang we've all heard of that yeah um so yin yoga is where you take it really easy really slow and you use bolsters and blankets and blocks and so if you can't you know if your knee doesn't go down no problem you just prop it up with a few blocks and a blanket or something so you're supported in the postures and it, the focus is really on letting go and again it takes you into your parasympathetic nervous system it's wonderful and there's so much more of it around. Wow. You know, one of the things that, that definitely is helpful is the ability to step out of our thoughts and look at things as a whole so we don't react to them. Um, you know, I mean, it's easy to think about that, but it's really hard to do. Yes. <laughs> it's hard not to react to things, especially personally, like when we feel personally attacked or something like that. Yeah. Yes. It's very difficult. And so the practice of yoga and meditation, and I just feel yoga and meditation, they're, um, they're the same thing, really. They're just different manifestations. Yes, absolutely. We can, um, but we each, we each have a style and approach that we know helps us take us there, we hope, because it's that practice, it's the repetition of the re and the regular practice that, helps us to control our own reactions to situations that we don't really need to react to. But we've all got our triggers, haven't we? Mm. So, learning to manoeuvre our way through the obstacles of life. Interesting. Um, do you have like um, adaptive techniques for people that can't achieve certain poses and things like that? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, so I would always, so rather than starting off teaching like the full magnificent posture, I work up through the default positions anyway, so that everybody's got somewhere to go back to. And by building up and taking a staged approach, then everybody stops at their own level and feels quite comfortable about it. I mean, it depends on the teacher. I mean, there are, there are, of course, different approaches to yoga as well. I went to, because um, I actually really love to do Bikram yoga. Have you heard of Bikram? No. Hot yoga done at 42 degrees. Oh, um, yeah. Actually, he, he's gained a bit of notoriety over the last few years. So I won't go into that. He can be Google. But the yoga itself is, is fantastic. I love doing it in the heat because afterwards you feel reborn. Um, but with... Oh, gosh, I've lost my thread. What was your question again? I forgot my question already. Oh, right, okay. Well, you said you just uh, roll with it. But I was trying <laughs> to make a point about Bikram. Oh, you're talking about adaptive techniques to let yeah. people... Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Like, like hot yoga seems extreme to me. I would probably pass out. Yeah, I've, yeah, some people do. I mean, this is amazing. I love it, but... Um, I've always liked quite strong yoga, but as I 
have aged. Obviously, you can't keep that up forever, but I still like to do it. Um, but just being happy with whichever point you get to, that's important. Santosha is another underpinning principle, which means contentment. So just being content with where you are. And also with, with, um, with the Bikram, every day it's a bit different, or every time I do it, it's a bit different. So sometimes it's like, oh yeah, you just breeze through it, no problem. And it's always a set sequence of postures as well, so you know exactly what to expect. Um, and then other days, it's like, God, you're falling over all over the place, and everybody will say this about it. But because, quite honestly, you're only thinking about survival when you're in there, and the sweat's pouring down you, and it's in your ears, and you, um, you, you know, you just want to get, get through to the next breath, quite honestly, sometimes. So it, it certainly helps you live in the moment. Hmm. Still can't remember the question I was trying to answer. It's going to be very humiliating for your listeners. Exactly we'll what find out got. when you listen to the episode. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, what is you know you you mentioned um, the the two philosophies and how they overlap. What are some of the areas where they overlap, where they're in agreement with? Well, really, just the underpinning view of the, of the world and the universe, the fact that um, that we do have all these different elements and in, in nature. So you'll find that mentioned in the Upanishads, which are definitely Vedantic. Um, and then the principles, the moral principles, you'll find them mentioned in both. So the, the so a hymn now that's an interesting one. A hymns are non-harming, non-violence, which Gandhi took as his um, watchword for his emancipate India from the British campaign. And he it was a campaign of non-violence. So he would just walk and from town to town and fast until death, that kind of thing. Although actually fasting until death is quite violent um, to yourself. Um, and that comes from the Jain tradition. Um, but that, that um, idea of ahimsa, non-harming, is um, interpreted so differently in different places. So the Jains, for example, um, sort of like a splinter sect of um, Hinduism and it, as I said some of the earlier practices come from the Jains they would cover their and some extremists still do in India cover their mouth with a cloth okay that's got quite normal to a lot of us now so just in case they breathe in an insect and they would sweep the path in front of them wherever they go in case they tread on an insect mm -hmm. um, they don't eat any root vegetables because they, um, they might harm these are the extremists because eating root vegetables, they might be harming some of the creatures that live in the ground when the, when the plants are harvested. And funnily enough, with them, like I said, it's uh, fasting unto death. Um, there's no dishonour about it, um, if that's what's necessary. The, so they practised austerities. There was this king, Bahubali, um, who, in South India, who... Um, he had to fight his brother for his kingdom, which is a common tale. Um, and he won. He won the battle, but then he felt such remorse at having killed all these people to get his kingdom back that he renounced everything 
and went into the jungle and he stood still for 12 years in what we know as Tadasana, the mountain posture. So just standing there and the tree creepers grew around him and the bees made um, honeycombs in his, um, between his shoulder and his head, that kind of thing. So he just became one with the jungle. So he so completely renounced his humanity. How he could actually physically stand still for, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit apocryphal. But anyway, this is the story. So mountain pose comes from there. And there is, um, you know, that seems quite harmful in a way to a human as a, as a, as a, an embodied sentient being. Um, so, but that he did all that in the name of Ahimsa, non-violence, because it was a reaction to the violence of killing. Oh, you asked for overlaps. Um, so, principles of breath, for example, you'll find them in both. So, yes, we breathe in, we breathe out, but there's a whole load more to it than that. So, the two nostrils, um, how the breath works through the two nostrils, um, that, there's a, that's a huge thing in Svarudaya, that was a text about um, all about the things that are to be done when the left nostrils open, the things not to be done when the left nostrils open, and the same with the right nostril, and how you can train your nostrils to... Um, actually, I, 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 must, I must admit that I just became... I can take the simplistic view, but it gets a bit mind-boggling after all. How can anyone follow this? But um, awareness of the breath, is certainly in in both schools so in patanjali he's the one who um codified yoga if you like he he just made it into a system around about the fourth century and uh he does he mentions the breath he talks about pranayama because he's the one that talks about the eight limbs of yoga um starting with the yamas and the niyamas those are the um, underpinning ethical uh, codes moral and ethical codes I've been talking about. Um, so yamas and niyamas, and then asana, those are the postures, and then pranayama, that's breath control, and then pratyahara, sense withdrawal, dharana, concentration, dhyana, meditation, and samadhi, which is, you know, we all know samadhi, it's like that's where you're Ah, oh, but that's not it. In Patanjali, there's different sorts of Patanjali. There's different roads. So there's Samadhi with seed and there's Samadhi with, without seed. So you, you go through these different um, uh, grades, if you like, of Samadhi as well. And then eventually, if you're really lucky, you can, um, you can attain um, freedom. You, you, your Purusha goes floating off. So you, you are individually liberated. Um, so he does talk, he mentions Pranayama in that. Um, but he doesn't tell you how to do pranayama. Um, but then you look at the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which is a text compiled in about the 15th century CE, and and that was taken. That a lot of it's taken from other texts um, from a few hundred years before. So you got a bit from this text and a bit from that. But the Hatha Yoga Pradipika that expands on all the stuff you find in Patanjali. But actually, Patanjali is um, Samkhya, that's dualistic, going from the relative to the absolute. 
And actually, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika um, is, is more Vedantic. Well, mm-hmm. it's got so many aspects of uh, which overlap with Patanjali in there. So, Hatha Yoga Pradipika in Chapter 3 talks about, um, well, Chapter 2, you've got the breath and the different pranayamas and the observation that um, if we can control the breath, we can control the mind. And then he lists um, various um, he's Fatmarama, the compiler of the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which means light on Hatha Yoga, by the way. Anyway, so um, he, he goes through the different practices and then in, um, with Pranayama um, and says what to do and what not to do. And you must be very careful because um, of the you know breath is more dangerous than lions and elephants and tigers. And then in chapter three, he talks about the manipulation of the breath, because actually the we have different different things happening in different parts of the body. So when we breathe in, there's a prana. So prana is the underpinning life force, if you like. So when we breathe in, the prana moves upwards in the chest, but down in the pelvis. And the prana in the pelvis is known is known as apana. And when we breathe out, the apana and the prana fold back to unite at the samana, samanic region in the abdomen. So they both come together and then we feed the prana back towards the spine. So if you've got the, the so there is there is an underpinning mechanical reality to what we're doing with the breath. But we've got mention of the prana all the way back from the Vedas. So that's very much something which goes all across the board and as I said you know if you're giving birth and um, you've got to reach baby and not you personally but you know what I mean um, and you really want to help yourself get that baby out before they whip you into theatre you breathe you breathe in and you breathe out because breath is what fuels everything hmm. And one of the things too that I think is interesting is like when I look back at the you know the the older yogis of India, they were all male. They were like all these guys with, with long hair and long beards and going out in the yeah. desert and taking off their clothes and just sitting there fasting and meditating and doing different postures. And now here in the West, it's mainly female. Yeah. Like if I go to a yoga class now, I feel completely out of place. <laughs> and I'm definitely not wearing yoga pants. No, no, but you can wear. <laughs> uh, yeah, isn't it interesting? Now, is it because the women were doing yoga, but um, they weren't mentioned? I mean, there are a few mentions of women. I mean, in the Upanishads, there's mention. I think anyway, there's mention of a woman called Gargi, who's a great debater and philosopher, but. Um, there's not a lot of mention of women. And it's my feeling that they were always there and always doing it because women have such an incredible instinct for yoga. Um, I, I, you know, generally yoga as we understand it, going through the postures and getting to the more esoteric bits. Um, were they doing it anyway? Women have always been giving birth. They've always, you know, there's this instinct within us but they just didn't have, because it's all coming out of India, um, which is governed by the laws of Manu, which really, you know, uh, the Brahminism doesn't give an awful lot of 
authority, not traditionally, to the female. So were they not doing it? I mean, an interesting thing, I saw some footage of um, young boys learning, um, learning Vedic chanting. And it's all boys, so Brahmin boys with the thread across, because um, the you know, so that's the higher class. So they're all doing their chanting from the Vedas, and it's very precise. You've got to get exactly this note here and exactly that note there. And da, 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 da. But they will be accompanied by their older sister, perhaps, or their mother, and she knows exactly what the words are. And you'll see, you know, you see she's at the side, sort of mouthing it, knowing it, and if the boy um, connected with her uh, has forgotten, he'll look at her and she'll help him. So, yeah, <laughs> the women have always been there in the background, I feel. But how mm. do we know? No evidence. Very little. Does yoga um, give people a longer lifespan? Well, um, apparently. <laughs> so uh, it, it does say somewhere... Um, that our breath, well, we're each allocated a certain amount of breaths for our lifetime. So the more slowly we breathe, the longer we'll live like a tortoise. That's why you find tortoises are always very venerated hmm. everywhere. Um, you, can't, you can't come up with any guarantees, but certainly, um, you see, that you, you, you talked at the beginning about the yogic lifestyle. So the yogic lifestyle would be uh, moderation in eating and drinking and so on and if alcohol is taken in moderation and if you know so so just being sensible so the whole lifestyle encourages longer health but as you know cancer for example respects nobody so um i i see people who are very unhealthy getting cancer i see people who are extremely healthy i've seen some incredible yoga teachers be struck by, down by cancer and die so there are no guarantees but i think it it helps anyway to live how about some of the more profound or you know things like levitation bilocation things like that um mm. you know again like like that was something that was sort of common in the stories of india um, but I haven't heard anybody about, you know, at the yoga center, at the shopping center, <laughs> levitating you or haven't? bilocating. You, you haven't? <laughs> oh, what a surprise. <laughs> I, think quite, I think they're a bit worried about their risk assessment forms. <laughs> you know, supposing somebody wakes up from relaxation, they're not in their own body. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's certainly there, um, but you're probably not going to find it at the shopping center um patanjali is interesting because people talk about patanjali the you know the one who codified and did his eight limbs and all the rest of it and um yes patanjali he's very um he's very clear about what actually third chapter of patanjali he he does give advice on the cities so the cities are um, magical powers, just as you've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So you can focus focus on point at the pit of the throat if you're feeling hungry, and um, hunger will be diminished. You can focus on I can't remember exactly what they all are. I've been through them all. Um, 
But anyway, you, you focus on the point at the navel and um, you get, all knowledge comes to you and so on and so forth. There's another one that you can do and um, you can cross any territory, however many um, bogs or swamps or thorns are in your way and you can just fly over it. So, oh, flying. Flying is the um, Siddhi, the magical power, which was very much sought after, uh, always has been. So, yes, sir, and, and you can you can read in Patanjali um, how to get there. But funnily enough, when people talk about Patanjali, they're not talking about chapter three. They're generally talking about the <coughs> things. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can see that. Um, they're all there and it is an aspect of yoga but what Patanjali says is ignore it as well you know if you if you want to get powerful in the world by all means there are yogic um, techniques that can give you that power if that's important to you but at the end of the day um, if we want freedom we also want to be free of the world so don't take too much notice of them either hmm. I want to levitate. Having said that, yeah. I, you know, I, like if there, was, if there was a yoga studio near me that could guarantee levitation, that's where I would go. Yeah, yeah. Um, who who was it? There, there is one lot who do that. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, then you see films, and they're really just yeah. George Harrison um, was uh, sponsoring them at one point. Yeah, you see, oh. It'll come back anyway. So, he's, but actually, was that the Maharishi? I think so. Am I right? I could. Oh no, I could be getting this all wrong. Just say that it might be. I'm not <laughs> sure, but there was one lot, and, and but you see them, and they're sitting cross-legged and bouncing up and down on mattresses, and that again is a yogic technique. That's, uh -huh. It's a, a Tibetan yogic technique, <coughs> bouncing up and down. Uh, Mahaveda, I believe it's called, but. Um, they weren't exactly flying off into the sunset on celestial wings, shall we say. Yeah, I want to go, like, into outer space, you know. Yeah, yeah. Not just bouncing up and down. That's not going to cut it. <laughs> your physical body might not withstand it, but for sure you can take your astral body to outer space. So that Madame Blavatsky and um, the Theosophists, mm -hmm. um, those guys, they, they were all into that, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, she was into all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah. Tough read, yeah. though. <laughs> yeah. The Secret Doctrine oh. is one of the hardest reads ever. Uh, yeah, did you actually finish it? <laughs> I've never gotten through the whole thing. I look at it more as a reference now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't read it from front to back, no way. Very you? difficult. No, no, I, I've even lost my copy. I think it was kind of deliberately on purpose. <laughs> I don't know where it's come when I moved house. It's just kind of uh, disappeared. Although, actually, I would I would like to have another look, but um, yeah. But the, you know, there are techniques, and anyway, um, there are there are ways. Of, I mean, meditate. You meditate. So, do you ever feel when you're meditating that you can actually leave your body and go elsewhere, or do you? I can, I, with the help of binaural beats, I can. Like, like, like binaural beats have been something that have really worked well for me for that type of experience. Um, you know, another way obviously is drugs, um, but I don't do drugs anymore. You know, I, I laid off the LSD many years ago. Um, 
But yeah. Yeah, drugs really open up, but the doors are then opened. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in some ways, like I think drugs are a great tool for some people. Hmm. Um, but but from so just the practice of meditation or regulating the breath or breathing through one nostril, things like that. No, I, I haven't. But maybe I just haven't done it consistently enough too, or had the right teacher. Um, like like those type of teachers now, at least here in the U.S., are pretty hard to find. Mm. Um, like the guy I, I originally learned from, like he was like a real type of Swami type of dude, you know. Mm. Mm. You know he was a real Kundalini yoga teacher. Mm. Um, but to find that here now is pretty rare. Mm. Yes. I, I yeah, n- so. now I'm more likely to find a housewife with five kids in a minivan. Hmm. That's okay. She'll keep you earthed. But um, <laughs> what? But what all these pra- even taught by a housewife with five kids in a minivan? But, but I, don't, I don't think the housewife with the five kids in a minivan is, is is worried about astral projection. I think they're more worried about losing weight. Oh, you know. losing weight yeah. <laughs> or something. I don't know. It's, it's just different. It just doesn't seem. Well, you know, you could lose. Yeah, go on. It, it to me is it's lost its spiritual vibe here. You could lose so much weight that you just fly off weightless. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. It's it's very much an emphasis on um, what we, how we appear, which you know that's got some weight. So I wouldn't dismiss that either because some people get so much more self-confident by becoming healthier and losing weight because they don't lose too much weight. But um, I wanted to say something to um, come back. So is this liminal state that we approach with yoga. Liminal, do you, do you know what I mean by that? No. It's like, well, because you mentioned LSD, and that's what mm-hmm. LSD does. It opens up the minds um, to all these different possibilities, these different views of reality. Um, but we can go there with pranayama, with meditation, and it's a state of um, en- where everything imaginable is possible. Mm-hmm. Everything unimaginable is totally possible. So it's, again, so you could say that's tied up with the parasympathetic nervous system as well. Yeah. And then you're going from there to, well, wherever you want, outer space. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I feel, as I, I mean, I do feel, it's just my mind, but... In my mind, I go to outer space every day. I, I love it. I love cruising around outer space and inviting my students. So, you know, it's just when they're lying on their back and releasing their lower back after and as they go for a prowl through outer space. And um, I don't know if they know what I'm talking about or not. But anyway, <laughs> just sort of like pouncing from one. Um, oh, yeah, mind that black hole. Um, go past that stuff. So the imagination is whatever it's triggered by and however we use it, That that's our key. Yeah. And there's this practice called Yoga Nidra. Have you come across that? I've heard the term. Yeah, so Yoga Nidra literally means yogic sleep. And yeah, t- yeah, sleep is cool. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is yogic sleep. So you're not unconscious, you're conscious uh-huh. while, while not moving. So it's almost like your body's in a state of paralysis, but your mind is very alert and active, and then you can go wherever you want. And that you should find easier to find, yoga nidra. It depends. Of course, the problem is that they call all sorts of mm-hmm. who they are, but you get all sorts of very basic relaxations called yoga nidra. 
but you need to go to somebody who's been trained by the Bihar school mm. because if you want your magic and mystery, um, they're on the cusp of that and they're very good with the yoga nidra. One of the things that but, I found that works with that is to go to sleep for about four hours, set the alarm, wake up, wake up, get, get yourself up for like a half hour or so, and then go back down to sleep. But go back down to sleep with the intention of doing it consciously, that, that you're going to stay conscious and aware when your body falls asleep. And it, it, that's actually, it, it works, you know. And that's what you do. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you don't suffer from insomnia. Um, I don't know if I suffer from insomnia or not. Sometimes, or I, I don't know. Yeah. Mm. I mean, like lately, like like now I let my dog sleep with me. And he he wakes me up quite a bit, or he lays on top of me. It's it's yeah. weird. He he puts me to sleep and he wakes me up. Yeah, animals. <laughs> but but it does. But but having him has changed my dreaming pattern. Oh. I definitely have more lucid dreams now. So does your when you say you go to so you set your alarm to wake up after four hours, mm -hmm. and and then you move around for half an hour, and then you deliberately go back to sleep. What's your dog doing then? He'll, he'll lay it right back down on top of me and go back to sleep with me. Oh right, yeah, yeah. and then you yes, because I I would agree with that because it's not I will wake up and then not be able to get back to sleep. So that I so I have various things that I do. And one of them is just that which you described. What I like is to lie back on a bolster and consciously breathe. And that takes me into the mm -hmm. parasympathetic and then, yes, yeah, off to sleep to a very, um, a, more of a conscious sleep. I, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, as soon as you like feel that falling sensation or like a tunnel type of thing, you yeah. know, you kind of set that intention and go with it. Mm. And have you done lucid dreaming? I've had lucid dreams, but not on purpose. Mm. Um, I've done remote viewing, which was, you know, get, get your brain into an alpha state. That's also pretty cool. What? What's that? Remote viewing. I've no idea. It, it's, uh, it's, it, it's weird. It's hard to describe. I mean, it was the program developed by the CIA, by the government. But it works. You know, so obviously they know about some of the uh, things that we can do with our consciousness. <laughs> so, so what does this involve? How do you do this thing? Uh, there's like six steps to it. Like the first thing you do is you wear, like the way I do it is like, you wear a blindfold where you don't have any light. You listen to yeah. a binaural beat that gets your brain into an alpha state. When you come out of that, when you when you take off the blindfold, you're given an eight-digit number. And then you draw like a little ideogram, and then you probe it, you write down information, and you keep breaking it down and down, and you do a sketch, and then at the, by the end you do a summary. And you do it in like groups of people. You can do it in like a group of 10 or 20 people. And nobody knows what the target is. And then at the end, you find out what the target is, and everybody just compares their notes. And right. it's, it's amazing how accurate it actually is. That sounds really interesting. What's it called? I'm going to write that down. Remote feeling. I should actually hold on one second. Mm. This is the, the the class that I took. It's called oh. by 
and it, it was incredible. He's, he's been a guest on my show a few times. Oh, that sounds really interesting. I'm just writing that down. I've got that. PhD. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Glad he's got. Yeah, I've got but, that. But it's Thank you. cool. Like, you're not actually leaving your body, but somehow you can see these things. Yeah, so that's, would you call that astral travel? Or? It's, it's not astral travel. It's, it's different than that, or they categorize it differently. You know, one of the things with this type of metaphysical stuff is language doesn't necessarily cover everything. Mm. Sometimes I think using language to describe these things or label these things limits them or limits our own conscious ability to use our consciousness so some of it can't be described it can only be experienced yeah you know like it's like enlightenment like you can't describe enlightenment it's only meant there it's only there to be experienced yeah and if you were enlightened why would you want to ex to describe it because uh, you just experience it right is there any push towards enlightenment in yoga, like there is in yeah, Buddhist that, meditation? Is, yeah, because every, every philosophical school has its own um, soteriological methods, and that is, how do you get liberation? So yes, they all do. Some call it nirvana. Mm -hmm. Nirvana is a great, great extinguishing. Of course, you'll be familiar with that from Buddhism. Um, but yes, it's the, definitely... There's always a point. I don't know. I don't know if they'll be talking about that in your um, yoga class in the shopping centre. That's, that's uh, what I'm saying. It's like it's missing that. You know, I wish I could find. I, I wish I could find another old guy with a long beard, in robes. Uh, you know, yeah. Who 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 was India doing hatha yoga? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they could be there. I just want to go back to something you said about the alpha alphaism because alpha the alpha alpha wave state yeah yeah because actually with yoga nidra it's, your mind's in delta I'm not a great expert but um, in in delta it's this state of deep relaxation so um, it's very refreshing so you come out of that as if you've had a deep sleep but hmm. you haven't and and then so so the way it works is. You were talking about remote viewing and how you go through a certain mm -hmm. set of stages. It's the same with yoga nidra. You go through different stages. You, where are you? The time, um, time and the date and the place. And then you go around the body. You take your attention to every part of the body bit by bit, but quite rapidly. And then um, you watch the breath. And then you um, go through um, various images. So the person leading the yoga nidra, uh, which I taught a class this morning, so that was me. Um, just gives out different images and they're contrasting images so so the mind doesn't stay on one thing and then at the end you have a you've already set your sankalpa your intention and you repeat that three times and you come back so it could be um, just 10 minutes 15 20 an hour but however long you're there for you lose sense of time and you're absolutely no it doesn't necessarily work for people who can't visualize mm -hmm. so those people would just stay with the breath but in either case people do report a, a deep sense of relaxation mm. and and all the nourishment and healing that that brings well, i guess if you're but doing it's not it, the same maybe, as enlightenment yeah, yeah go on. I, but i guess if you're doing practices like that 
there has to be people here doing it too that I'm just okay. unaware of. Maybe I'm just being judgmental. Maybe you just haven't been to the right yoga class yet. Maybe you should <laughs> go go around and just Google all the yoga schools around you. Try them all. You, you never know who might yeah. have what. Well, when they open, <laughs> they're still all closed, I think. Oh, are they still closed? Because of COVID, yeah. Yeah. Everything's jammed yeah, unless they've um, unless they've gone out of business, unfortunately, that's happened quite a lot here as well. But I also have Gaia. There's yoga on Gaia too. The network. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I, I um, I, there, there, there's all sorts. There's all sorts of yoga everywhere. And you, sounds like you you want the mystical experience. Which yeah, is, I'm all about that. <laughs> Yeah, and that, that's always there. It's always available. Maybe you just need to go to a regular yoga class and read Patanjali chapter three. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Yeah. It's fun. Um, so before we wrap it up, where's the best place for my listeners to find you and find your books? Amazon. Amazon, <laughs> really? Yeah. How'd you or, get your book on Amazon? I don't know. There um, it is. Publisher, just put it there. In fact, yeah. you have more than one, don't you? I do have a few books. Yeah, the, the, the yoga for pregnancy, That's integrating philosophy. Yeah, walking to the mountain. Yoga para el. Oh, this is Spanish. You speak Spanish? No, I didn't translate it. Which one is that? I don't know. It's written in Spanish. Oh, okay. Well, never mind. It's probably just one of the others translated. No, um, and the other one is Walking to the Mountain, walking which I wrote Malcolm. about. Yeah. Walking, walking to the Mountain. That's out of print as well, but um, you can get it on eBay occasionally. And that's about walking across Tibet to Mount Kailash. You know, Have you been to Tibet? Oh, many times, yes. Really? Many, so, many you, times. so you've hung out with the Sherpa? Uh, well, the Sherpas tend to be, they, they go on the exhibitions and do the heavy lifting mm -hmm. so not really uh no i you went I've to the monasteries out. yeah oh yeah i've i spent a lot of time in tibet really? um yeah but before children so it's i mean i've even been back I, I i even took my oldest our oldest daughter back to tibet when she was six took her back when she was one and when she was six took her to mount kailash kailash when she was six but walking to the mountain is about walking across Western Tibet to Kailash, which is the, the fount of all geomantic mystery and I would wonder. love that. I would love to do something like that. Yeah. I don't think it would be so... Well, present circumstances aside, of course, what happens now is with so many things, um, the Chinese have just taken over Kailash. So when I went, I was able to walk across. There wasn't even a road for, to follow. It was just like a dirt track. There's no, no bridges over the rivers, so I was kind of walking and um, across the rivers with the water closing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just over my head, I just kept on, kept on walking. Anyway, so um, point is, they've got bridges everywhere, and Kailash is very much McDonaldified, and they're looking at um, putting a road all the way around Kailash. So maybe you wouldn't want to go there now, but there's. I mean, Tibet is the most incredible place. So have you read Alexandra David Neal? No. Magic and Mystery in Tibet. Mm -mm. So she talks about all these practices that um, take or took place in Tibet. I think some of them still are practicing. 
um, but very hard to find anyone practicing now. But all these things like um, like being able to walk um, hundred miles um, in a night that you know just superhuman practices. Um, Tumo the um, the fire actually I practiced that once because I had to um, that's where you heat yourself from within it's essentially um, Bastrika uh, the bellows breath mm-hmm. um, but I was caught out on a mountain it wasn't a pass but I thought it was a pass and it wasn't it was just like I came to the edge of a cliff at nightfall and then I practiced the the um, they call it tumo um, all night right. just it's kind of like what Wim Hof does Basically, yes, yeah. same sort. Of, yeah, yeah. Anything is possible. So it yeah, is. all that. But in Tibet, maybe it's because the air's so thin, but it's a very. Uh, it's the, the whole atmosphere just lends itself to these practices. Wow, sounds beautiful. This is a whole other episode, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't. I wasn't learning from anybody there. It was just my own practice, and like mm-hmm. I just, I just feel that. Um, I was instructed. I did have guidance, but who from, where from, who knows? The astral realm. Yeah, yeah. I'm not spirit to... guides or whatever they are. Yeah, not lots of protected. De- but the, the air is just alive with um, something intangible, something indescribable, and it, it is it is totally magic. Hmm. Of course, and then you've got the, you know, you've got the situation with the Chinese, which isn't always that pleasant. So. Oh, screw the Chinese! What are you going to do? Put me in prison? <laughs> yeah. Even if you put, even if you put me in prison, then I had the rest of my life to practice my levitation. <laughs> yeah. <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. As a Westerner, you you get good treatment. Hmm? As a Westerner, if you're imprisoned, you get pretty good treatment. Uh, yeah, like I, like I say, I've studied with Anam Thapton, and he is from Tibet. He actually walked. He he was in China, and I think he walked over the mountains. Like he escaped China, walked walked over the mountain pass into Tibet, and then from there he came to the United States. Um. Well, so I've. Well, when I went to Princeton University, there was like a whole bunch of Tibetan monks just visiting, and they were doing like a, a mandala out of sand, and um, and they were just doing a whole bunch of stuff. They were giving like meditation instruction, and had like this white snow dragon dance, and, and they did the, the, the debates. The debates are hysterical. Like like you picture like these monks as being like these super mellow guys. But when they're doing like the debate, it is so funny. Like they're like they're stomping their feet and slapping each other. It, it's funny. great. <laughs> like yes, that's their yeah, form of in, entertainment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to love going to Saramona Street to, to observe them doing that. Yeah, it's it's right, so yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah, it's debate. Yes. And there is a rich history of debate as well. Um, not just in Tibet, but India as well. And they'll they'll still do that. You know, just these arguments. Um, and it's it's like a mental discipline. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the all this stuff with the slapping. It's so uh, fun, though. It's funny yeah. to watch. And then, like afterwards, like they're just like best friends. And, and I think there's a lot to learn just from that. You know, yeah. if we could do that in in Western culture, 
Life would be so much simpler. Yes, because people like to take their arguments home and it gets very personal. And yes, yeah, so, so, such a good discipline. Yeah. It's another of the, um, oh, he said yoga is, as you call it, the eight mamans, uh, six mamansas of um, Hinduism, and that's another of them, the debate. Yeah, that's cool. It's all great stuff. So much for us so to learn. Sorry, go on. Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just correcting something I said wrong. I thought, God, there's going to be people listening to this who know that I'm talking nonsense. I believe that Mimansa is the debate and the darshans of Hinduism are these different um, systems that constitute. But in reality, you know, there isn't just six. Apparently there's loads. I'm not a Hindu. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if any of my listeners are going to recognize a mistake in uh, Indian terminology. Yeah, but I would if I was listening. I what she's talking about. <laughs> I make yeah. mistakes all the time. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, let's relax then. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm going to post yeah. a link to your website, and I'm going to post a link to your books in a note to this episode, so my listeners can find you. And it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for coming on today. Well, it's not great to meet you. I hope you find a good yoga class. I say just keep going because you never know. I'll try. You know, when yoga comes back, if it ever comes back. <laughs> it's always there. Unless I have to I go mean, like underground yeah. yoga now. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, the yoga is everywhere. So it will, if you, you know, if you put it out there that you, you're looking for some mystical yoga, I'm sure it's going to find you. I'll try that. I need, I need a mystical experience. Yeah. I enjoy them. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And hang on for one moment. And I'm just going to play the outro. All right. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. 